0: Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also contribute by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Supporters of same-sex marriage were very
1: dedicated. They lost the ballot box 32 straight times before they prevailed. I don't agree
0: with the outcome, but I do admire their persistence. I think pro-life versus a civil persistence in the future. Cults are notoriously controlling and manipulative, and I think the woke movement really operates similarly because they seed such foundational lies, both anthropologically, what a human person is, but also spiritual lies.
2: In
1: our current culture in the United States of America, there seems to be an abundance of preoccupation on the state to the extent we see the other estates of family and church being neglected and in decline and deterioration. Once we surrender a objective truth outside of us in the scripture, an objective truth outside of us, I am baptized. I receive the body and blood of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in with and under the bread and the wine. When that goes by the wayside, then what I'm left with is my feelings.
0: Wisconsin turkey producers, love, issues, etc. <laughs> If there is no God, can we have right or wrong, good or evil? What does Scripture mean when it says that we don't own our own bodies, and how was the devil created? Those are some of the questions that have come from kids that we'll be answering in our 16th part of our series, Kids Have Questions. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Jonathan Connor will be there to answer those questions from the kids. We'll spend some time after that going through your email and the issues, etc., comment line, and then we'll discuss Christian confession and funeral practices with Josh Pauling. who's author of a column for Touchstone magazine titled Burial Plots, Christian Tradition as a Subversive Witness Against Modern Funeral Practices. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd, happy to be back. Here's a interesting first question. What do you mean by you don't own your body? Like I know God made it, but
2: I'm just confused. Yeah, I mean, I love this because a couple things. We we say these things kind of as pastors sometimes and because we've been marinated in this thought for so long, We don't often appreciate how ears of those who maybe are hearing it for the first time or i mean just actually hearing it for the first time how they may struggle to process it and honestly this is one of the things i love about children and new christians because they hear things you know like they're hearing it for the first time as the the shocking news or the good news or the challenging news that it really is sometimes it's left for us who've been confessing christ for years sadly, to dull our ears to the freshness and the remarkableness of the statements that scripture is making. And this truly is a remarkable statement. So I'm going to answer the child first and then we'll dig in a little bit deeper. So I say to the child, yes, this is true for a couple reasons. One, like you said, God created our bodies. So when you create something like when you write a paper or draw a picture, you are its owner other people aren't free to mess with it they aren't free to twist your words or reinterpret your picture the same goes with our bodies god created our bodies and he gave them purpose he told us what they're for so we aren't free to claim them for ourselves and do what we want with them so we aren't free to tell god for instance that he gave us the wrong body and Two, Jesus redeemed and purchased us with his own blood. So we are called to glorify God. So you could think of that as making God famous with our bodies, not by engaging in sin, like getting drunk or sex outside of marriage, but by actively serving others. So when we say that God owns our bodies, we are saying that God is in charge. He gets to say what is good and how our bodies are to be used. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. And actually, as I was reading that answer, it dawned on me, we actually have this idea of not altering something because we're not its author built into most of our Lutheran churches in their cornerstone. We'll have that UAC engraved in that cornerstone, Unaltered Augsburg Confession. Well, it's funny because when I explain that to people, they often say to me, why does it have unaltered in front of it? I said, well, because that means we're not free to alter it, right? I mean, and there were other editions of the Augsburg Confession, but it also means the one that nobody messed with and we're not free to change it. So I think that's an important concept for us to get is an author retains ownership of his work. And I think in our culture, maybe this is something that's pretty foreign to us, this concept of outside ownership, I mean, how many times have we heard, you know, my body, my choice right now when that's chanted, for example, in support of abortion, I mean, it's it's wrong for at least a couple of reasons. One, the child in the womb, the child's not a part of the woman's body. So it's false to claim that the child is my body. And two, the woman, or in this case, anyone for that matter, chanting my body isn't actually chanting truth. It would be true if they had created their own body, but We know that's not possible and scripture emphatically asserts that god created the body so as such as the creator see the creator gets to decide how the body should be used and like i said i think that's a concept that's pretty foreign to us today because you know in our culture we're big on things like autonomy and authenticity like you be you so i don't think we're used to thinking about our body as having outside ownership i mean, just think about that our bodies have outside ownership so in fact rosaria butterfield she helpfully points this out when she talks about the body that gives us a pattern that reveals its divine purpose so the male female binary pattern teaches us something about the purpose for the body and I think that's actually really helpful for all of us, but it's especially helpful for teaching children. So let me just show you one way I think this can be helpful, especially in today's climate. So in terms of teaching the pattern with the purpose concept and then going from purpose to the purposer, right? The creator, the one who gets to decide what the purpose is. Okay. so. And I think this is teachable to children and you, you can gauge what age perhaps to teach this to children. But I think it can be taught even to adults this way. There's something built into the body. All right. So consider the human body just for a minute. All right. So you have a heart. The heart doesn't need anybody else to do what it's designed to do. You have lungs and kidneys and a pancreas and they don't need anybody else to do what they're designed to do. But what happens? We discover we have this one system in our body, the reproductive system, and guess what we find? It actually needs another body to do what it's designed to do. It has a created complement. It has a lock and key design. So that's the pattern with a purpose, right? The body speaks. The body testifies. And I think this is important, I've written an article on this before on my church's website calling Letting the Body Speak. And What current culture is trying to do is silence the body. And the church's call is to let the body speak. And Nancy Percy writes a wonderful book on this in her Love Thy Body book, which I highly recommend. You've had her on before. She's just a great writer and that's a wonderful book. I recommend it. So. God has created our bodies with a lock and key design. So the body is designed by a master designer. And that means he gets to say what it's for. Now, I want to make sure I make this also clear because I'm not saying that because we have reproductive systems that we have to reproduce. I'm saying that the body's pattern, it actually does tell us something about its purpose. And that purpose, here's the thing, it has come from outside of us. Now, but Scripture actually goes on and adds to that concept, and it insists that we are actually doubly owned, first in creation, second, as those baptized into Christ, in redemption. So Paul writes, and he's speaking here about the whole church, right, the church as a whole. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body so glorify god as the body of christ one and yes glorify god by honoring the purpose that arises from the pattern that god gave to your body now i mean obviously there's a whole lot more to say on this i mean there's a whole book to say on this and percy writes the book right so read the book i do want to say just how surprisingly freeing this actually is. And Rosaria writes about this in in her books. But the point is, we don't have to invent our purpose. I think that's actually a freeing thing. All we need to do is receive it. And when we do, then we're able better to see more clearly what God has called good, what he considers good. And now this will start to give some clarity to our lives, to our vocations, to what we should be celebrating and what we should be supporting and encouraging, to what we should be giving our energies to. And then surprise, surprise, it's also where we are going to find great purpose and satisfaction in life. So just to wrap up here, appreciate what God has called good. So appreciate his creation. Marvel then that he has redeemed it. Understand this, okay, he retains ownership, we focus on stewardship. Another question, if there is no God,
0: we can't have right or wrong,
2: good or evil, correct? Yeah, this is actually a really astute observation by a child, and there's a lot to be said on this. This is sort of the moral argument for God, and I'm going to get into that, but this is really a good question. So let me say to the child, you're spot on. If God doesn't exist, we can't define good or evil. We can only express our preferences, but that is clearly not strong enough. Nobody lives like that. Everyone lives as if certain things are really and actually right and really and actually wrong, regardless of what people feel about them. But in order for something to be objectively right or wrong, that means regardless of how we feel about it, we need an almighty being in whom the definition of right and wrong find their source, because moral laws only exist in the minds of conscious beings. And that almighty being is God. So it goes like this. If objective morals exist, God exists. Objective morals exist, therefore God exists. All right, so that's where my answer to the child ends, but this is a really important observation. So if objective morals exist, God exists. Now, I want people to understand though what we're not saying when we say this, okay? We're not saying a person who doesn't believe in God can't know right and wrong. That's really important. We're saying if there is no God, then right and wrong do not exist. So look, an atheist may be a very moral person. And I actually find it pretty ironic how ardently some atheists argue for certain moral positions if there is no God, then what they're doing isn't qualitatively different than arguing for your favorite ice cream flavor. Right? So if you hear an atheist arguing for some moral position, just kind of map over their words. I believe chocolate is the best ice cream flavor. Objectively, it is the best ice cream flavor in the universe. Well, that's just silly. Ice cream is a preference. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, so the late William Provine, he was an atheist biology professor at Cornell. He made it explicitly clear what atheism espouses. Here are his words. He says, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either." I mean, that's about as clear as they come, right? I mean, he pretty much laid it out there. And I'm sure most of us by now have heard Richard Dawkins, his famous quip, right, when he said, "'There is at bottom of it all no good, no evil, no purpose, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference.'" DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. (laughs) You just kind of love how um, he somehow thinks that by saying uh, we dance to its music, that's somehow going to soften the implication of we're just basically automatons. Just our atoms are randomly firing inside of us and we have no free will. Like somehow that makes us feel better that, oh, we don't have free will and we're just dancing to the beat of our dna the thought of no free will is a terrifying thought for lots of reasons but i want to go on because there's another example i want to share i think it maybe would get a little bit closer to helping people understand how significant these sorts of positions are so there was a 2010 documentary called the genius of charles darwin and i would challenged the title nonetheless it was one where richard dawkins was interviewing a fellow atheist peter singer about okay not making this up it was about eating human roadkill yep that's right human roadkill so they're, they're sitting there kind of prognosticating about what do you think about eating human roadkill like with straight faces they're sitting here talking to each other about this and in the entire conversation neither one of them calls it wrong Not once, not once, they discussed whether the families of the roadkill should be consulted first or not, but never were they able to call it wrong. I want people to appreciate that. These are two atheists. They understand the implications of their worldview. They're sitting there in this high-rise office discussing whether eating human roadkill is, you know, how do you feel about that? Not whether it's right or wrong, just how do you feel about it? let me give one more example. This has been around for a long time. So the Anglican satirist, uh, Jonathan Swift, this famous example back in the 1700s, he writes, this is satire, by the way. So for everyone understanding, he's not seriously proposing this, but he's writing satire to make a point. In his uh, essay, A Modest Proposal. So he satirically suggests that rather than allowing poor, starving children to be a burden on society, they should be fattened up and eaten. Now, of course, we all react with revulsion, and rightly so. But if there is no God, if atheism is true, nobody can call that wrong. All they can say is, I don't prefer to eat children. Or they could say, I don't prefer to eat human roadkill, because that's not my favorite flavor of ice cream now look i can understand why people might not like this but there's no way around it it's really this simple if objective morals exist god must exist if there are certain things that are wrong for all people of all times and all places then god must exist right if eating human roadkill is wrong god must exist if if fattening babies up to eat them is wrong, God must exist, because He's the only one big enough to make such a law. And look, a higher power, sometimes people try to get around this by saying, well, I believe in a higher power. Look, a higher power won't do. Lightning is a higher power, and it has absolutely no moral preferences at all. Higher powers have nothing to do with morality, nothing. And objective morals don't just rise to the top of humanity like, like whey rises to the top of yogurt. And evolution cannot account for it. I mean, we already heard Provine and Dawkins and Singer make this clear. Atoms don't care if you eat babies, not one bit. Atoms don't care if you eat human roadkill. And if God doesn't exist, if evolution's the name in the game, look, then we are all just big sacks of atoms. And how can one sack of atoms call another sack of atoms wrong? They can't. Only moral beings care about morality. And the only way to have a world where some things are wrong, like fattening babies up and eating them, or aborting them if you don't want them, or eating human roadkill, the only way that that could be wrong is if there's a moral being big enough to make these moral laws for all people and all times and all places. And look, polytheism won't work either. You can't have a world with a bunch of warring deities. That's a disaster. You need one sovereign moral being from whom all morality comes. And that's precisely what we have. But here's the problem. The problem is that we don't like his morals because they tell us ours are wrong. They tell us ours are selfish, and bent and we don't like that but, but the good news is that he knows it and he doesn't fling lightning bolts at us what he does is he delivers his son to forgive us and as he establishes a church to deliver it to us in person I think that's the good news we want to make sure we bring people to. We have to go through that really sober news of what a world would be if God doesn't exist. But because God does exist, and because not just any God, but Jesus Christ, and we have his promise of forgiveness and life and salvation, I mean, that's a message we can get really excited about. And I think we want to make sure when we answer that question, we always take people to Jesus.
0: Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 16 of our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question up, how was the devil created? Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org and you can also contribute by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Two millennia ago, Pilate uttered one of the most profound questions that we still ask in the modern era. What is truth? Many today would say that truth-like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or perhaps in the heart. But that's not what truth is for the Christian people of God. Truth is found in Christ alone. To learn more about the Lutheran view of truth, pick up the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
1: Continuing education for the confessional Lutheran. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
0: The estate of love runs through the other three estates, and that means that the Christian is in the position to love anyone, believer or not. The Christian friend should have overflowing compassion for their friend who is no worse a sinner than they are, and yet does not yet know the love of God. A little bit from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture by Alfonso Espinosa. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or... Call Concordia Publishing House and order of faith that shines in the culture, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. It's part 16 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Conner, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa, is our guest. Jonathan, the next question, how was the devil created? Was sin always there just like God was, or did God create it when he made good and bad?
2: All right, so that's obviously gonna be a little bit of a complicated question to unpack because sometimes in the question, I have to do some correcting what's been asked, but nonetheless, it's a good question and I wanna work through it for a couple of reasons. I'm going to be in my answer, making sure that I warn, especially we pastor types, who can sometimes get a little frustrated because we feel like these are questions people should know, not to go down that road of frustration, but to reframe the way we approach an answer to questions we feel like people should just know. So first to the child, wonderful and thoughtful question. Let's start in the beginning. God created the devil, but not as an evil spiritual being. God created him good. We understand from various places in scripture that he rebelled against God. And sin isn't something God created. Sin entered the world when Adam ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So sin has not always existed. Further, God didn't create good and bad. God created good. Bad is the corruption of the good that God created. So think of sin like a cancer on God's creation it corrupts and distorts and destroys. God didn't create it. Adam's disobedience brought sin into the world. And this sin is twisting and distorting the good that God created. The promise of scripture though, is that God is going to banish sin and death forever when Jesus returns, even as he will bathe the entire creation in his glory so when jesus comes the bad will be gone forever and the good will be made better forever okay that's where my answer ends sometimes i like to put it this way with kids when jesus comes he's going to get rid of the bad and he's going to supersize the good right and i think that's really exciting to think about that but again let me go back to an observation i started with a minute ago and this is especially for my pastor friends but bible class leaders mature christians who we've been thinking about and teaching these things for years and it can be very tempting to get frustrated by a question like this because in our minds it's absolutely basic and one one level one respect it is basic this is the first three chapters of the book of the bible right and you feel like (laughs) if we know anything we ought to at least know the first three chapters of the book so I'll give you an example. About a month ago, our neighbor boy had this. He's a middle school student. He had this wild idea that he was going to read Moby Dick. Like, I'm going to go read Moby Dick. And I thought, well, that's a wild idea, even for an adult, because if you've ever picked up Moby Dick, one, it's a pretty thick book. And number two, it doesn't exactly move very quickly. So my wife smiled at him and she encouraged him. And on his way out, she said, Hey, Luke, call me Ishmael. Okay, now, if if you've read the book or even the first page or the first sentence, it's the first line in the book. So she quoted it to see if he would come back next time and uh, having connected the dots, right? Well, he didn't. And you know why, right? Because he didn't open the book. So we may not like this, but the fact of the matter is we have a lot of families who aren't opening the book. They're not opening scripture. So there is this deep biblical literacy among the church today. Now, why is obviously a fascinating question. It's a question for another time. My point for now is that we're just going to have to acknowledge it as we approach ministry. We need to acknowledge it in our preaching and in our teaching and in our writing and not in a negative sense. You can't just say, you bunch of biblically illiterate fools, that's not going to work. So I think as preachers and teachers and writers, We're going to have to get used to making parenthetical statements, right? Little extra explanations that define terms or or spell things out that we might otherwise wish that we could just assume. So look, the child here asks a very basic question. And I could get all worked up because they didn't know it. Or I could celebrate the question and feed knowledge into it. And that's what I'm choosing to do. I really want to encourage all of our teachers and preachers and so forth to take that approach to hear there's a genuine question yep it's coming from a place of ignorance but let's feed knowledge into it and treat them like a valued questioner but let me make a couple observations here about the question itself one god created the spiritual being that we call satan but satan is really a title it means the accuser so it may be more technically correct to say, like I did, that God created the spiritual being we call Satan. So in other words, I don't think he was created as the accuser. He was created good and he rebelled. So in the Bible has a couple of fascinating double meaning descriptions, like in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, where the prophets, they map the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon onto the rebellion of this spiritual being that we call Satan. Now, it would take me an entire Bible class to unpack that. We'll just leave that there for now. The point I want to get to, which is really the important point, is this. And I think this is the thing we can teach to kids and to adults. It's a very simple point, but it's this. Sin is an an intruder, right? Sin is an intruder. It is not native to God's creation this is important because so often kids have this conception of a sort of a a yin yang sort of thing right good evil god satan reality here's the problem with that and if any adults are thinking that this, this is a real problem we can't have that idea because here's why that gives evil and satan too much importance it gives them way too much standing because evil is not goods opposite it is the corruption of good and satan is not god's opposite he would be closer, for example, maybe to Michael the archangel's opposite. I don't want to belabor this, but this is really, really important. Here's why because evil and Satan are not equal but opposite realities to good and God that we need to endure for eternity. They are lesser realities that God is going to banish. They will not persist into the new creation. So here's how we can teach this sin is an intruder, Satan is. Is an accuser what do you want to do with an intruder well you want to kick him out and what do you want to do with an accuser you want to silence him you see and that's the promise that's precisely what god is going to do that's that's what jesus was doing in his earthly ministry and that's what jesus guarantees in his resurrection So look, sin has an eviction notice and Jesus is going to come back and kick him out. And Satan has had his teeth punched out. So look, he's reduced to accusing for now with a mumble until Christ returns to lock him in the soundproof dungeon of hell where we will never have to hear his accusations again. And I think if we can teach that to kids and to adults, I think they'll be able to grasp what the scriptures are getting at. And just, I think that would fill them with such enthusiasm and hope.
0: The next question, when we come back from the break, what are the best ways to get your mind in the Christian mode, the child asks? We'll see what Pastor Connor has to say after this. How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November.
1: Often imitated never equaled you're listening to issues etc
2: you're personally invited to join lutherans for
0: life and why for life in celebrating the theme just as i am
2: january 14th through the 20th during life week 2024 each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities online educational events interviews and more Find out more at lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org.
0: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. Pastor Connor, Next question. What are the best ways to get your mind in the Christian
2: mode? Isn't that a great question? It's a different way of asking the question, but I love that this comes from a child and they're asking like, how do I think Christianly? And I think, in fact, I wish that more people would be asking this question because there are some really good answers for it. It's going to require us to maybe make some changes in our life. But if we could ask more intentionally, how do I get my mind in the Christian mode? How do I think Christianly? I think we'll arrive at a good place with an answer and I think we do good things for us and for the church. So here's what I say to the child. First, wonderful question. I want people to notice, by the way, I really try in my responses to kids to find some way to affirm the question. I can tell you, I am my own worst enemy in this because in the act of affirming their act of asking the question, they ask more questions. So what I've actually been observing So I have 28 kids in my seventh and eighth grade class. And with the learning journals, they're supposed to write down one question they have or one thing they learned, but they've really adopted this idea of asking questions. And I kid you not, I have some kids who have asked eight, nine, 10, some of them are asking 15 questions that has taken me a little bit longer than I anticipated in a week to answer all their questions. But they're not asking silly questions. They're asking serious questions. And so I feel like a child who is asking a serious question, even if it may be a little bit basic or asked in a, a different way, it merits a thoughtful answer. So that's taken me a little more time in my week than I initially thought it would. But I can tell you, watching the kids pick up their learning journals on Wednesday before class starts, and even some of them have highlighters out and they're highlighting the answers, it's obviously important to them. So I've just disciplined myself to make the time to do it. But I want to affirm the act of asking the question. So I say, wonderful question. I wish more people would ask this question. Let me answer by asking you a question. What are the best ways to get your mind in the sports mode? Or what are the best ways to get your mind in the gaming mode? I suspect you know the answer. To get your mind in the sports mode, you would need to play and or watch sports. To get your mind in the gaming mode, you would need to play the games. And the more you do it, the more that that more in that mode you become. In fact, habits actually rewire your brain. The saying goes like this, the neurons that fire together wire together. In other words, the more you give yourself to a certain behavior, the more your brain builds highways, actually neural connections that work like highways in the brain, that your thoughts will more naturally travel down. So how do you get in the Christian mode? You need to do the Christian faith. You need to hear God's Word. You need to confess the Apostles' Creed and pray the Lord's Prayer. You need to think God's thoughts after Him. You need to talk about what you're hearing and thinking and learning from God's Word. You need to ask questions about life, about death, about forgiveness, about the world that God made, about the evidences of His handiwork visible in creation, about our relationship to money and sects and relationships, about resurrection and the new earth. There's no shortcut to this. It takes work, but I will tell you this, it is worth it. There's nothing more joyful and fulfilling than thinking God's thoughts after him, than knowing his love and his peace and his purpose. There's nothing more grounding than knowing where you fit in the world, what your identity is, and that you are loved by God. So here's my encouragement. Ask good questions this year. Be willing to read, to think, to pray, to listen, and to stretch yourself. God is real. His word is true. And they are worth your lifelong pursuit. So that's where the answer to the child ends. But again, I want to emphasize, and I've emphasized this before, and if we keep doing interviews, I am sure I will say it again because it is true and it's it's powerful. I want to emphasize the importance and the power of habits. So I've recommended these books before, but I would encourage people to read James Smith's book, You Are What You Love, and uh, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. And I mentioned this before, but. These are so valuable to help people understand this important truth about the Christian faith, and it's this: it is something you do. And okay, for all my good Lutheran friends, I don't want them to start hyperventilating because I'm, I'm not turning salvation into something that's built on works. It's not my point. What I'm trying to do is to get people to see that faith in Christ. We can't just reduce it to this sort of check mark. Right? I believe God is real. Yeah, I, I believe in this generic sense that God just loves all people. And I believe He wants me to be nice, right? Check, check, check. And then th- that's it. Think about it. Jesus' command in Matthew 28. So you know, he says, as you're going, as you're lifing, make disciples. And then he, you say, Well, how? And he says, Well, you baptize in the triune name, and then you teach people something. What's he say? Does he just say, Teach them what I taught? No. He says, Teach them to observe, to keep, to do. What i commanded so jesus is assuming action so our question needs to be well how are we going to do that and there's one word habits it takes habits it takes very intentional habits it takes certain thought habits it takes financial habits it takes time habits it takes worship habits it takes word Habits, I mean, actually choosing carefully the words that you're going to use to communicate and making this a habit. It takes free time habits. It takes music habits. It takes life habits. So the child asked about getting in the Christian mode. And actually, I love that phrase. It's such a different way of asking it, but I love it. Then you heard my question to the child how do you get into the sports mode for instance or if you wanted to get in the gaming mode which i would encourage people not to get into the gaming mode but if you were you wouldn't say well i believe in sports or i believe in gaming because that's not going to do it you're going to have to invest your life and this is what i wish so much that people would get not because it's going to make them more saved although i do believe it's likely that more people would be saved because This is the thing that's largely missing from the Christian witness. Christians who don't live in the Christian mode. I've got several articles on my church's website that have written on cultivating these habits. And I would love to dedicate just an entire series to that question alone. How do we live in the Christian mode? How do we incorporate thoughtful habits into our daily lives? Because I truly believe this is a key piece missing in the lives of many Christians today. So maybe I'll just end with that phrase I shared with the child. Neurons that fire together wire together. So here's what I want people to understand. This is gonna be a different way of, of saying this and maybe a different way for you to hear it. But you habit your way into new thinking. You habit your way into new living. You habit your way into the Christian mode.
0: Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. He's pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Part 16 of our series Kids Have Questions. The next question is from 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25, where Paul talks about preaching folly to the Gentiles. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor.
1: Sophisticated Lutheran Apologetics. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.
0: In this wonderful month of thankfulness, we thought it would be a great time to say a huge thank you to Pastor Todd Wilkin, Jeff, and their team. For almost 10 years, they have opened their broadcasts to Ad Crucem and allowed us to share our products with their listeners. Thank you to Issues Etc., and thank you, dear listeners, for all your support and patronage over these years. God bless you.
1: From Ad Crucem, that's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
0: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's our series Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Conner is our guest. Next question. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 through 25, the text says that we preach folly to the Gentiles, but I thought we were supposed to preach what is true. That's what
2: I always understood. Yeah, okay. So this gives a great opportunity, a little bit of insight into the way a child's mind works. Well, every preacher's ever preached a sermon knows this i've had multiple occasions where people say to me well, just like pastor said in his sermon and then i hear what they say and i think wow i have never said that in my life i have no idea how they heard that so obviously the child has not understood the text they picked up on that word folly and they're misunderstanding it so we need to bring some clarity to what the text says but let me first read the text that the child is referring to so everyone knows what we're talking about and then i'll unpack it but again this is a it's a helpful moment for us all to pause and realize it's very easy for people to misunderstand us we need to practice patience and be very careful in our communicating so that we can try to cut some of that off as much as we can so this is from 1 corinthians like you mentioned 23 to 25 and here's the text for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, so I gave the the fuller context there. I started at verse 18 just to get the whole picture, but I want to make sure our listeners have that text in their mind, and now the answer to the child. First, great question. Now, Paul isn't saying that what we preach is foolish. He's saying that the Gentiles believe it's foolish. In other words, the idea of the Son of God dying sounds foolish to them. Why would God do that? He also says that the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews, literally scandal. They were scandalized by the thought of the Son of God dying such a shameful and humiliating death. In their mind, the Messiah was supposed to be strong and mighty and triumphant, not dying naked on a cross. So Paul's point then is that God took something that the Gentiles thought was foolish and something that the Jews thought was scandalous, the cross of Jesus, and used it to redeem the world. So what some considered foolish turned out to be wiser than the greatest wisdom of man. And what others considered a scandal and a sign of great weakness turned out to be stronger than the strength of man. OK, so that's where the answer to the child ends. But again, like I mentioned, this provides such great insight, one into the hearing of a child, but I also want to add into the hearing of newer Christians and and really also for those maybe who haven't made a life habit of listening carefully to scripture, because what it does is it teaches us not to assume that everyone just automatically understands. Just to return to the comment I made earlier about making parenthetical comments, we just need to make sure we're explaining as we go along, that we're not needlessly excluding people or making them feel like they're stupid because they don't get it. In fact, Todd, you know this, you know, you're a pastor. So much of pastoral work, it's just restating the basics over and over and over again. I mean, that's what the Catechism is so good about, just restating the basics. And. I think it's important that we don't let that frustrate us because we've got people of all different levels of maturity and understanding, young people who are just starting to really pay attention and process what they're hearing, new people who haven't been listening for very long, and then you know all people in between. So we need to be patient as we bring everyone along. But look, regarding the text that the child referenced, this is such a remarkable text. Paul says, right, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God." This is such great stuff. So stumbling block, the Greek word, skandalon, right? It's a scandal, right? A naked man beaten and bloody on the cross, that's just scandalous. And folly, the Greek word is mor- moria or moria. It's, it, it's, we could basically translate it moronic, right? That's basically what the word is saying. I mean, that the Son of God would die a death like that? I mean, that that was really God's plan. That that was how he was going to save the world. I mean, really? Seriously? That's the plan? You could say, it's moronic. I mean, it's like God said, okay, so here's the plan. Jesus is going to die. He's going to get arrested and be humiliated and beaten and mocked and then crucified. That's my plan. What kind of God would save through dying or who would win through defeat? Have you ever heard of such a thing? So the Greeks say, that's moria, that's moronic. But Paul says, surprise, you know that scandal? It's the power of God. And the word is dunamis and you could stretch a bit and translate it as the dynamite of God. I mean, Christ explodes the power of Satan and the grip of sin, he blows it up. And that moria, that moron talk, it's actually wisdom. God outsmarted Satan and he outwitted the wisest man. Because here's the thing, The cross saves. You can spend all day saying, but but couldn't have God done it a different way? It's a waste of time because this is what God did. He showed that his weakness is stronger than our strength. He showed that that his folly is wiser than our wisdom. I guess that's why Paul wraps up his his opening salvo there in 1 Corinthians uh, with these words. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mean, what is there left to do? God's weakness is stronger than our strength. His folly is wiser than our wisdom. We've got nothing to boast about. So if we're going to boast, let's boast in the Lord. How many
0: stoles do you as a pastor have and what other different colors? First, what is a stole?
2: Yeah, great question. So the stole would be that... um, Think of it like a yoke that you put on an ox, you hang it over their neck. It's that colored piece of cloth that's hanging around the pastor's neck. And it actually has great symbolism. And I'm gonna to get to that in just a minute. But when you see the pastor standing in the front in the white robe, the alb, and the colored piece of cloth hanging around straight down on both sides around his neck, that's the stole. And I'm gonna expand upon that in a minute because what it symbolizes is really powerful. Now let me answer to the child first. Here are the colors of stoles white red blue purple green each color goes with a different church season so we actually treat the pastor like he's a piece of furniture we do this to downplay the man and emphasize the office in which he serves and the task to which he has been called to bring the word of jesus into the ears of the gathered worshipers okay now that's my answer ends but a couple quick observations number one we treat the pastor like he's a piece of furniture so, if there are green paraments, those are the cloths on the altar, for instance. If there are green paraments on the altar, there's a green stole hanging around the pastor's neck. He's a part of the furniture. Because remember, he stands in an office. And the point of the office is not the man, the point is Jesus. It's the same thing in the furniture in the chancel area, right? The point of the altar isn't the woodwork or the stonework. The point is what is delivered by and from the altar, the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the same goes for the other pieces. The point is what they point to. So it's the same with the pastor. We treat him like a piece of furniture to keep us from either focusing, for example, on his expensive suit or on his skinny jeans and expensive sneakers. Because the man is not the point. The man in whose stead he stands is the point, and that man is Jesus. But one other point. First of all, the child knew the name of the stole, and we shouldn't take that for granted because a lot of people don't even know what that thing's called. In fact, I remember a few years ago, I was teaching confirmation kids on the stole what it was, and I said, What is this thing called? And one of the children spoke up and said, It's a sash. And we all laughed for a little bit, and I told her in the class that. Uh, it was called a stole and what it symbolized and so forth. And like I mentioned earlier, that stole is that piece of cloth that the pastor wears around his neck, but it also tells you that that man is ordained. He has been vetted by the church. He has met the biblical criteria to serve as pastor. And so the church has said, this man is a pastor and that tells you he's a pastor. So an acolyte, one who would light the candles, for instance, would not wear a stole. And so the, the non stoled robe means not pastor. But that stole, like I mentioned, also is a picture of a shared burden. So it's a picture of a man being yoked with his people to bear their burdens with them. And basically, you could think of pulling them to Jesus. I'm going to go back to the observation quick and I'll be done with my answer. But back to the sash. After I explained this to the class, so after I told them that it was a stole and not a sash, I told them, and this is the part I want people to understand I said to the children, remember this, kids, pastors don't. Accessorize. That's actually really important. If a pastor is accessorizing in front of the gathered congregation, he is misunderstanding his office. He's making it about himself, and that means very bad things for the church. And we have a lot of pastors today, or those who are pretending to be pastors, wearing all sorts of symbols and logos and rainbows and so on to highlight their issue. They're not acting like furniture. They're acting like a billboard, and for the sake of the church, they need to stop. Now, look, I know there's no thus saith the Lord on the stole. I get that. But the stole has meaning, both for the pastor and for the people. And I think a deeper understanding and appreciation of that stole could do good things for the church.
0: Pastor Jonathan Connors, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You'll find a link to his blog on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks so much, Todd. When we come back, it's the listener email or email address, issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. Then Josh Pauly will join us to talk about the Christian Confession and Funeral Practices.
1: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
0: Jesus the Good Shepherd says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. We invite you to join us as we listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow Him who gives us eternal life. Sunday worship services at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible class at 10.30. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Arnold, Missouri, on the web at goodshepherdarnold.org. That's goodshepherdarnold.org. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us.
1: Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org.